Our scene opens on a poor PhD student, Janadin, and her poverty-stricken supervisor, Dr. Twanky. The astronomy funding stream is being extremely hard hit, and student and supervisor are trying to think of ways to fund their research. Oh, Janadin, I don't know what we're going to do. I can't even rub together 20p to get a cup of tea from the canteen. I know, and they don't even let us buy our own kettle. What's the point of that? Oh, there's no use for it. We're going to have to go outside and sell off everything. Sell those star charts to Google. Find the receipts for our pencils and get a refund. Rent the Lovell telescope to Tesco. You may even have to start doing some lab demonstrating. Oh no, I couldn't do that. That's horrible. Well, if that horrid man, Professor Abenaza, actually knew where the Jodrell Bank budget was, we may not have to go to that length. I know, I've had my expenses receipts there for years. We should be in Parliament. Oh, I bet he'd be in there. That snake, that slimy, horrid, foul, nasty, awful, disgusting... Wonderful, fine figure of a man. Oh, Professor Abenazer, it's so wonderful to see you again. May I say how awfully dashing you are in that wonderful suit, and can I respectfully put in a request that my funding source can be unlocked because I have three children at home and two supervisees that need to live. They can't live on pizza barefooted all the time. I know PhD students do, but I love them all so dearly and I can't see them waste away for three years and I'm so unhappy. (laughs) What an eccentric performance. Dr Twanky, may I remind you that science budgets are a mystery, a law unto themselves. Even I am subject to their death. Devastating machinations. Oh, Professor! No, Twanky, I won't hear any more of this. I have a job. A job? But it requires just Janadin. This is your opportunity, Janadin, to bring fame and fortune to this department. Worldwide acclaim and professional respect could be mine. Yours? Uh, I I mean ours, of course. Brilliant. What do I do? Follow me. Twanky, you're six months behind on the coffee list. Deal with it. Meanwhile, in an undisclosed location, far, far away. Oh, I have all this data. I know in the right hands it could be worth a lot, but it's just not what I want to do. Daddy? Daddy! What is it, my love? Princess Parks? Well, Daddy, I'm just not feeling fulfilled in my work. I don't want to do telescope observations all day and all night. I want to report things like the news and... Now, Princess, we give you all the data you could ever want, and you want to be a journalist? Oh, it's not like that, Daddy. What's happening, darling? Our daughter wants to become a Fleet Street hack. Oh, come on, darling. She's just going through a rebellious phase. Every PhD student does it. It's called the second year blues. I'm a postdoc. Princess postdoc. You have a position in society to think about. You can't do news reporting. Oh, yes, I can. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, no, you can't. Well, you can't stop me. We'll see about that. Consider yourself grounded. You want to be locked in the highest observatory in the kingdom. No contact, no Twitter, and certainly no mobile phone. What? Yes, it messes with the signals. You've seen the signs around Jodrell Bank? But, Daddy! God! My Lord? Take Princess Parks to the highest observatory and lock her in. My Lord. Let go of me! Help! Oh dear, what are we to do? I blame the internet. We now join our hero, Janadin, with Professor Abanaza deep in the bowels of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. So why are we here? And how come I never knew there was a room this big under the library? Oh, no one knows quite what's in here, but I need someone like you, an avid researcher, an exceptional talent to be able to find an important artefact lost many years ago. But this is just a bare room full of ventilator systems. Yes, ventilator shafts that I cannot fit in, or I would go in myself and retrieve the treasure. Treasure? 
You mean treasure we could use for grant money? Yes, Janadin, exactly. Now, hop inside this opening and tell me what you find. OK, if you're sure. Yes, yes, now get on with it. Think of the papers, the academic acclaim, the professional respect. If anyone mentions professional respect again, I'm going to scream. All right, I'm going in. What can you see, Janadin? Have you found the treasure? No, not yet. I can't see. Nah, there's only this dusty old Morant's recorder. That's it. Pass it out, Janadin. Let's have it. I'm stuck in the shaft. How do you expect me to get something in front of me to behind me? You are a physicist, aren't you? Very well. Seeing as you're being consummately stubborn, I shall lock you in here and until you give me the recorder. What? You heard me. Now I have some first-year undergraduate student spirits to break. You can rot for all I care, Janadin. Oh, functions. Several hours later, Janadin popped out of the ducting, clutching the dusty old Morantz recorder. So this is what Professor Abenaza wanted all the time. It's pretty dusty. I wonder if it has any battery left. Where's the play button? Ah, here it is. Ah, that's better. What? Who? What's wrong? Never heard a genie before? But you're... A recording? Yes. Yes, I am. But how are you speaking to me? Think of the next question. Well, what happens if I rewind this? Well, it does now. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does now. (laughs) This is too weird. I know. You didn't even have to factor in a rewind into your recording. Well, look. Can you help me? Yes, certainly. Don't blink. Don't close your eyes. Don't look away and don't blink. Why not? How would I know? It's in the script. (laughs) Look, I'm locked in this room and I need to get out of here. That's easy to do. I am a genie, after all. I will grant you three wishes. Three wishes? Brilliant! Choose carefully, though. Think wisely before... I want new shoes. Granted! Yay! Red and sparkly. Fantastic! Next wish. For my next wish, I want to be with everyone else. Granted. Oh, oh! what happened? I was just hanging the tea bags out to dry and suddenly I find myself here. Where am I? You there. Where are we? What is the meaning of this? I blame the internet. And for your final wish, Jen Eden? I wish for a quality astronomy podcast, complete with quirky music, quality interviews and a live studio audience. Nothing like shoehorning a segue into a script, is there? Your wish is granted! The Jodcast, live, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, Neil Young, and a live studio audience! The Jodcast, December 2009 issue. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of The Jodcast, with as many Jodcast presenters as I've ever seen in one room together, and as many listeners as I've seen in one room together. So welcome everybody to Jodrell Bank that's here, and welcome everyone who is listening. So now just to introduce all the presenters that we do have here, let's go along the line. So first up, Stuart. Hi everyone. Jen. Hello. There's me. Here's Neil. Hey, how you doing? And we've got Nick there. Hello. And our very special guest, Dr. Chris Lintott. Hello. 
So coming up in the show this issue, we have an interview with Chris Lentot about Galaxy Zoo. We find out what you can see in the night sky during December. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, mystery at the centre of Cassiopeia A, a new way to search for exoplanets, and spectacular outflows in Orion. When massive stars explode as supernovae, they leave behind a dense, compact object, either a neutron star or a black hole, depending on the mass of the original star. They also produce an expanding shell of debris, known as a supernova remnant. Many of these shells are known in the Milky Way, but compact objects are not detected in all of them. One object in particular, the remnant known as Cassiopeia A, has been expanding since its progenitor star exploded about 330 years ago, but for a long time no compact object was detected, despite many searches. Then, in 1999, observations from the Chandra X-ray Observatory showed X-ray emission coming from the centre of the remnant. But the emission characteristics of the object did not match what astronomers expected to see from a neutron star or a black hole, so its nature remained uncertain. Now, two researchers think they know why. In a paper published in the journal Nature on November the 5th, the astrophysicists suggest that Cas A does contain a central compact neutron star, but that it may be surrounded by an unusual atmosphere of carbon. The Cas A remnant is located at a distance of 3.4 kiloparsecs from the Earth, and is one of the youngest known in the Milky Way. The explosion of the star which created the remnant may have been witnessed by the Astronomer Royal at the time, John Plumstead, in 1680. Wynne Ho from the University of Southampton and Craig Heinke of the University of Alberta created models of the emission that would be expected from various different types of neutron star atmospheres and compared their models to spectra of Cas A from archive gender observations of the central compact object. What their models showed was that if the neutron star has a normal hydrogen or helium atmosphere, the size of the emission region would be only 4 or 5 kilometres in diameter, much smaller than the size of this type of star predicted by standard models. This would suggest that the emission would be coming not from the entire surface, but from hotspots. However, such hotspots would be hard to produce, and difficult to maintain at a constant temperature. If the star had a carbon atmosphere, however, the predicted radius of the emission region is 12 to 15 kilometres, closely matching the predictions for the radius of a normal neutron star. So why is the compact object in Cas A so unusual? The authors suggest that this could be due to its young age. They think that the neutron star could accumulate an atmosphere of hydrogen and helium over time and develop a detectable spin, making it appear more like other, well-studied neutron stars. While this is a plausible model for the compact object in Cas A, further observations are still required in order to prove it is the correct explanation. Planet searching techniques are continuously being refined and are detecting ever smaller planets at greater and greater distances from their parent stars. But a team of astronomers have discovered a link between planetary systems and lithium abundance that could provide a new tool in the search for exoplanets. Most methods of searching for planetary systems around other stars are best suited to finding large planets orbiting very close to their host stars. But what if there was a way to determine the likelihood of a particular star hosting planets without actually detecting the planets at all? A team, led by Garrick Israelian of the Institute de Astrophysica de Canarias in Tenerife, think they have found a link between whether stars host planets and how much lithium is observed. Lithium is one of the lightest chemical elements and is present in detectable quantities in most stars. The surface abundance of lithium on the Sun is 140 times less than what it was in the protostellar cloud from which the Sun formed. 
The surface of the sun consists of a convective layer where material is constantly circulated in large convection cells, but the temperature at the base of this layer is not high enough to burn lithium, so where did it go? The team studied spectra of 451 stars, some of which host planets, while some do not. All the stars in the sample were similar to the sun, with surface temperatures between 4,900 and 6,500 degrees Kelvin. When they compared the lithium abundances, they found that for stars with surface temperatures in the range 5,600 to 5,900 Kelvin, the majority of stars known to host planets were severely depleted in lithium, whereas the non-planet hosting stars showed a much lower level of depletion. This indicates a possible link between lithium depletion and planet formation, which could be used to pre-screen stars for planet searches. However, the link is only seen for stars in a particular temperature range. Above 5,900 Kelvin, the convective layer is too shallow to reach a depth where the temperature is high enough to burn helium, while below 5,700 Kelvin, the convective layers penetrate deeper, and all stars show significant lithium depletion. Within this range, the amount of lithium depletion seen in the star-hosting planets is independent of both the star's surface temperature, metallicity, and age, indicating that the presence of a planetary system is related. While there is currently no model that explains this apparent link, the authors suggest a few ideas. The existence of a planetary system may result in a variation of the rotation of the star, increasing the mixing of material within layers. Planetary migration may also alter the stellar rotation, resulting in a similar effect. Another suggestion is that an interaction of the protostar with the surrounding accretion disk may lead to a large variation in rotation speeds of different layers within the star, with the outer layers slowed down by the disk compared to the core, again resulting in a greater mixing of material and more lithium being dragged down to layers where the temperature is high enough to destroy it. While more observations and detailed modelling is required to determine the physical process causing lithium depletion in planetary systems, these results suggest that an understanding of the Sun's lack of lithium may be best understood by looking at other planetary systems. The constellation of Orion contains some massive complex regions of star formation, the most obvious of which is the Great Orion Nebula, M42, located in Orion's sword. Through an optical telescope you can see a large glowing cloud of gas, illuminated by a cluster of young hot stars. But behind this cloud, hidden from view, lies another cluster of protostars, clumps of gas still collapsing under gravity in the process of forming stars. As ordinary light cannot penetrate through the gas, other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum are needed to see these protostars. Radio waves can penetrate through the thick gas and dust, and can provide images of these stars in the process of formation. Using the Very Long Baseline Array, a collection of ten radio telescopes located across the USA, a team of astronomers has peered into this hidden region and imaged it at high resolution. The team, led by Lynn Matthews at MIT's Haystack Observatory, used the VLBA to study an object known as Source I over two years. This source lies behind the Orion Nebula at a distance of just 414 parsecs, making it the closest known example of the class known as Young Stellar Objects. The astronomers used the VLBA to make regular monthly images over two years, studying the motion of sources known as masers, naturally occurring objects which act like lasers but at radio wavelengths. The images showed thousands of silicon monoxide masers in outflows from the protostar known as Source I, and by stitching together all of the images taken over two years, the team produced a movie showing the outflows of molecular material between 20 and 100 astronomical units from the young star in unprecedented detail. It is already known how these massive stars die. They explode catastrophically as supernovae, 
but how they form is more of a mystery, since the formation process takes place inside a thick cloud of gas. These observations show signs of a rotating accretion disk around the protostar, drawing surrounding material in a spiral motion towards the centre, where the new star is still growing. They also show material flowing out from the centre, perpendicular to the disk, in two large cones, one above and one below the disk. Outflows like these help the star formation process by carrying angular momentum away from the system. If a protostar spun too quickly, it might start losing material and ultimately rip itself apart. The movie also shows the outflows starting to curve as they leave the accretion disk, suggesting that magnetic fields may be influencing the motion of the material near to the star. The paper describing this work has been accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal in January 2010. And finally, in a press briefing on November the 14th, members of the LCROSS team presented the latest results from the impact of the spacecraft on the Moon back on October the 9th. The Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite was one of two man-made objects to impact the Moon that day. The ejector cloud produced by the empty Centaur episode of the rocket created a plume of material which was imaged by an infrared camera on board the LCROSS probe which was following four minutes behind. The roughly 10 kilometer sized cloud filled the field of view of some of the sensors on board LCROSS, resulting in good measurements of the composition of the lunar regolith. One infrared image, taken by LCROSS from a height of just 10 kilometers, shows the floor of the Cabeus crater for the first time, including a fresh crater from the impact of the Centaur upper stage. The initial results from the spectra obtained by LCROSS show deep absorption features due to water, implying that there was roughly 100 kilograms of water in the field of view of the instrument approximately equivalent to a dozen or so two-gallon buckets. As well as water, the spectra also show absorption due to several other compounds, the identities of which are yet to be confirmed. Thanks, Megan. We have a very well-trained audience, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving them cake later. Uh, So now we move on to our interview, and you will notice that Nick Rattenbury is back. And he'll be interviewing Dr. Chris Lintot. So, gentlemen, if you'd like, are you going to go down onto your chair? We're going to go sit in the comfy comfy chairs. chairs. Okay. Um, For the benefit of the listeners at home, we have two very, very comfy chairs. And so, coming to us live from the comfy chairs, here's Nick and Chris. Thank you very much, Dave, and uh, thank you very much to you, Dr. Chris Lintot, for coming to join us here, Jodrell Bank Observatory, for this live studio recording of the Jodcast. My pleasure. Anything for an audience. (laughs) (laughs) We might hold you to that later. But you are from... You are from the University of Oxford, yes, and you are, in fact, as a more interesting title, the chief zookeeper of Galaxy Zoo. And I want to talk, start off with, about Galaxy Zoo. Give us a quick description of Galaxy Zoo for those of you who may not know what Galaxy Zoo is. Yes, well, Galaxy Zoo is a project that's been running for about uh, almost two and a half years now, unbelievably, which was originally designed to stop me from torturing PhD students. Um, Did it work? Yeah, it worked very well. Um, because the problem we had was we had too many galaxies. In fact, we had images of a million of them, and we needed to sort them out according to their shape. Uh, this is something that the human eye is much better than a computer at doing. So when you had a few hundred galaxies, you got a professor to do it. When you had a few thousand galaxies, you got a student to do it. Uh, but when you get to a million, even students rebel. And so fact, you, you, were, you were reduced to the public at that stage? No, no, no. <laughs> you see, because the public are good at this. They're actually better than professional astronomers, we found because they don't come with prejudice and they they don't have any intrinsic feelings about what galaxies should be like. So we put them all on the web 
asked people to go to galaxyzoo.org, and they came in their droves. We now have about a quarter of a million people who've classified galaxies. A quarter of a million Zoo. people? Yep. and between them they provided well over 125 million classifications of galaxies. Let's go back a step and just uh, describe what actually happens. You've got all these pictures of galaxies. Where did they come from? Uh, they come from a robotic telescope you see, called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It sits in New Mexico, and it's spent about seven years taking images and measuring the distance to galaxies. Um, so that's the data set, and it's, it's enormous. It's a different way of doing astronomy, because suddenly we can get enough galaxies to ask statistical questions about the universe. We can find out how many galaxies like the Milky Way there are, what percentage of galaxies have spiral arms, and all of those things tell us about the evolution of the universe to, to lead to what we had today. Um, so we have these images, and what people do is go to the website and click buttons to answer questions about them. In the original Galaxy Zoo, it was just six buttons. Spiral, elliptical, tell us which way the spiral arms are going, if you can see them. Galaxy Zoo 2 that's up now asks more detailed questions. Hmm. Um, how many spiral arms are there? Uh, is there a bar at the centre of the galaxy? Something astronomers are very keen to know about. Um, what shape is the elliptical? All of those things. And So these are now the best understood galaxies or at least the, the galaxies we have the most information about, because people have looked at each and every one of them and given us their opinion. So what happens when people go to Galaxy Zoo, the website? They sign up, presumably. They, they and... sign up, they get a random image of a galaxy, um, and um, you just click buttons and tell us things about the galaxy. I mean, that's, the, that's what we designed the website to do. It turned out that people do a lot more than that. So we quickly grew a forum. Um, we grew the forum because we couldn't answer 30,000 emails. So the forum is a way of, it's email zoo, if you like. It gets people to answer each other's questions instead of us having to do it. Um, but that's become a place where people have, have discovered all sorts of things. And they, they discuss unusual objects they find. And all sorts of things have come from the forum. So the, the latest example that we're really excited about, uh, a group of objects called the Galaxy Zoo Peas. 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 Well, they're small, round, and green. You see. Um, that's a technical nomenclature that that's comes right, out of yeah. sorry, years of training to come up with that's these right. Um, well, it was our users that named They spotted, somebody spotted one of these things in the background of a galaxy image and posted uh, it on the forum with the title Give Peas a Chance. Uh, and then there's about four or five, you may be familiar with the internet and the people who dwell on the internet. So there, are four, there are four or five pages of puns um, <laughs> about peas. Uh, and then it became sort of a convention in the community that you weren't really allowed to post puns unless you'd found one of these things. So people went back through and classified galaxies until they found... There was an incentive things. to... Exactly. That's how and science that, gets done, isn't it? It's exactly, an incentive that exactly. drives discover. Make, making puns is a strong incentive <laughs> for both amateurs and professionals. Um, but then they did their own digging and they found that these things had a particular spectrum, because you have the spectrum from Sloan as well. In particular, they had a really strong uh, signature of oxygen, uh, what we call the O3 line. But that's associated with star formation. So they came to us and said, look, these things are, are small, but they're really star forming. And we were able to quantify that. They're forming stars with an efficiency that's unparalleled in the local universe. These are the sites of the most dramatic star formation. And they've been hiding in the data since the 60s. They're in catalogues from the 60s. But because no one had looked at them, they hadn't noticed how different from normal galaxies they looked. Is the, is the resolution of the images any different? Or it, um, well, there's a single pixel in Sloan, so that's why they're round, because in, we can't resolve them. There are three that we've got Hubble Space Telescope images of, just because they happen to be in the background of Hubble images. And there, there's a hint that they might be mergers. They tend, those three have all got paired nuclei, so not just a cent, one central point, but two. 
it's a bit risky to conclude anything on the basis of three. So um, when people are looking at these images, somebody would thought, well, that's odd-looking single pixel? Are we talking that's what, yeah, no, it's in the background. They're quite distinctive. And the point is that the computer hadn't identified them as a galaxy. So it's not that it was in our catalogue of galaxies. It was that we gave somebody another beautiful galaxy to see. And in the background, there was this green... They look like green stars. Hmm. And that helps them stand out. Stars don't generally come in green. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just because of the way the human eye perceives colour. We don't see, we see stars as blue or white or red. Uh, but we don't see green ones. So they are quite distinctive. Uh, the reason why these um, objects are green, is it because specifically they are a star-forming region? Well, this is the interest. Yeah, it's where this oxygen... So almost all the light we get from them comes from this emission from oxygen. Right. And at the redshifts, at the distances that these things are... Uh, that happens to lie in what the Sloan images interpret as green. Now, if you put them at different distance, because the redshift is different, the light gets stretched by the expansion of the universe, they come out as different colours. And in fact, just last week, my um, colleague Stephen Bamford from the University of Nottingham has been in Chile, down on the new technology telescope, the NTT, down there, um, and looking for more distant peas. So red peas? Red peas, yeah. Um, in fact, we label them by the, the band... Uh, in which they're found. So astronomers call different parts of the spectrum by letters, particularly when you get into the infrared. So we found some IPs, some ZPs, and uh, some JPs, which we're campaigning to have called PJs. Um, I like it. Yeah, you see, that gets a laugh. It's actually quite funny. It's, <laughs> internet humour works. Um, but no, but this is fantastic. And this is, I hope I'm, Stephen's going to kill me for talking about this publicly. We haven't published this data. So this is, this is novel and exciting. Because these things are efficiently forming stars now. They're the sites of the most efficient star formation now. And yet we found them back, we found the equivalents back at a redshift of one. So this may be a whole extra place where st- lots of star formation is happening. So this is a piece of the puzzle of how our, our galaxy is formed that we've never seen before. Mm. And there's been a lot of work, and you know, we, we had, uh, I should mention, uh, Carrie, uh, who's a PhD student at Yale, who published the paper, and Stephen's done the follow-up, but it all came from people looking at images and noticing that there was something odd. And that's the key thing here, because they were looking at something not just as they were, if you like, programmed to do, look at this galaxy. They went, our galaxy, going that way around, it's got a bar, not got a bar. What's that? Exactly. And even if your computer could classify the main galaxies properly, even if it could look at all million galaxies and say spiral, elliptical, spiral, elliptical, it would ne- it's really hard to program a computer to mm. do that and to go, what's the odd thing in the corner? That's almost impossible to automate. Um, and so that's one of the huge advantages of this, this method that we're developing. You can make serendipitous discoveries again. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's been the most amazing couple of years because this is what I thought astronomers did when I was a kid um, with playing with my school's telescope, wanting to be a professional astronomer. Discover odd object point as many telescopes as you can get a hold of at it and work out what it is. And to a large extent, that's what we're doing with the help of galaxies, with the Ps, with other famous objects like uh, the Volverp, which uh, we we could talk about another time perhaps, and all sorts of things that the users or our volunteers, our zooites, uh, are pointing us towards. Is it possible that these new serendipitous discoveries that you're making has somewhat eclipsed the, the, the original goal of Galaxy Zoo? I mean, tell us about the results from Galaxy Zoo as they were. You wanted to get uh, some information about how galaxies were uh, presented to us, let's say, from our point of view. Well, there are lots of, yeah, I mean, it's not eclipsed by any means from us. It's just the better stories are somebody told jokes about peace. Um, but no, the point is that for most galaxies, 
From Galaxy Zoo 1, we now know whether they appear as spiral or elliptical, and that's given us some surprises. So how people used to do this is assume that if you had a red galaxy, it was an elliptical, and if you had a blue galaxy, it's a spiral. And that sort of works because the colour tells you about star formation. So whenever you look at an optical image for astronomy, if you see blue, you're looking at stars that formed recently. Um, stars that formed within the last few hundred million years. So, you know, yesterday, by our standards. Um, so that, so that's good. So, so that sort of, and most star formation happens in spirals. So it's true that most blue galaxies are spiral. But it turns out if you look at the images and just judge on the shape, not the color, you find that's not always true. We found a whole population of red spirals. Hmm. Um, and they live in a particular place in the universe. So if you think of the distribution of galaxies as being like a city, you down in the center of Manchester, the equivalent is the center of a galaxy cluster. And in that sort of environment, we just find ellipticals, hmm. almost entirely. And then in the middle of nowhere, out here at Jodrell, um, perhaps, uh, in what we call the field, you'd only find spiral galaxies. So places where there are a few galaxies, you tend to find spirals. And then the red spirals live in between, in the suburbs, so on the outskirts of galaxy clusters, m almost a third of the galaxies tend to be red spirals, and almost all the spirals turn out to be red. So we've just submitted the paper that describes what we found and the properties of the red spirals, but actually we've got a serious problem as to how these things form. Um, how do you get a spiral galaxy that doesn't have star formation? And You start arguing that maybe the star formation has to have been switched off so one easy way to do that is to collide the galaxy with another one, and all the gas gets thrown out or used up, but then you destroy the spiral arms as well. Mm -hmm. So you need some sort of gentle process that's dramatic enough to switch off the star formation, but not powerful enough to get rid of the spiral arms. And that's, you know, that just, we didn't even know that problem existed before Galaxy Zoo. Yeah. And whatever the answer is, it will tell us something about how galaxies form, and we can use that to test our understanding of the, the whole process. It's quite awkward to, to discover that you might think, oh, look, you've got, you know, red ellipticals in the center and nice blue spirals outside. Maybe we would expect a continuum of things from one to the other, but you're saying that, yes, they exist, but we don't really like the idea because we don't understand Well, the continuums, both people thought there was a continuum in star formation history. So ellipticals, no star formation at the center, spirals, lots of star formation out, and you'd have a mixture of galaxies um, so you'd have fewer forming stars on the outskirts. That makes sense. But to find these red spirals, and incidentally, we also have a whole population of blue ellipticals that we're studying as well, uh, which live out in the middle of nowhere. So they're rare. We that They're easier to, just as exciting, but slightly easier to understand. They're the last stragglers. So most ellipticals formed quite a long time ago, or at least the stars in them uh, formed quite a long time ago. The oldest stars in the universe tend to live in elliptical galaxies. Um, but these are the last stragglers in the middle of nowhere that have taken time to form. And they're smaller than other ellipticals. And we have a whole program looking at gas in them to try and work out what's happened mm. um, to them, what's happening to their gas. So it's exciting that you've managed to pose more problems than uh, what you had when you that, started. That's when you know you've had a good scientific idea. I, I was stressed. I always tell the anecdote of being um, stressed trying to finish my thesis, which is a process that anyone who's becoming a scientist goes through and you go through excitement at doing anything at all to the second year slump that was mentioned in the panto uh, to the third year of, but how on earth am I going to answer all these questions? And some very wise person said to me that you definitely don't want a complete thesis because only boring theses are complete 
And if you leave loopholes, then that's what you spend the rest of your career working on. Um, so, so you can recognize a good scientific problem by, yeah, there are people nodding behind me. So clearly other people have had this experience. But you recognize something that's worth following in science because it raises more questions. Mm. And that's why we have Galaxy Zoo 2. For example, Zoo 2, we ask about bars. So if you have a spiral galaxy, the arms can either spiral all the way into the center or there could be a long straight feature at the center, which we call a bar, and the spiral arms join the end of it. And people have argued for years, for example, about whether our galaxy has a bar or not. So asking whether there's a bar is something we get from Zoo 2. And it turns out that red spirals tend to have more bars. Hmm. So I can see everyone in the room going, why would they do it? We, we don't know. We're working on it. But that that's an extra piece of information. Uh, and so... Yes, we get new questions, but we can go get more information about these galaxies mm. to try and answer those questions. Brings us on to, you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, merging galaxies, and that brings us on to another uh, new uh, extension of this work. Uh, yeah, you, it does. You, you are getting people to look at merging galaxies. It now. does. And at this point, this is going to sound so ridiculous, we're going to need to kill the Ustream because we're under embargo. <laughs> so by the time this is broadcast Jodcast people this will be public and I trust you lot because I can see you so having killed Ustream this week so that's last week for those of you listening at home um, we're going to ask people to help us solve another problem we've created so one of the things that the original Galaxy Zoo did was provide the world's largest catalogue of galaxies that are merging these are galaxies that are colliding together uh, and they can be spectacular and they're fabulous things to look at. There are some wonderful Hubble photos of colliding galaxies, and some of the 3,000 that we've got look deeply strange. So you have to think of these as like getting a still photo of a car crash or driving past and getting one look. Um, and you get a snapshot of the action, but what you want to know are two things. You want to know what happened to cause that, what did things look like before the crash, and you want to know what's going to happen. How's it going to end up? And we've got exactly the same thing here. So what we have to do is run a computer simulation and match that simulation to the snapshot that we've got now, and then we can run backwards into the past and forwards into the future. Works really well, except the computers are really bad at matching the computer simulation to the observations. They can get the big blobs at the center of the galaxy right, but all the detail, in these beautiful long tails of stars that get drawn out of the galaxies. If you know things like the Hubble photo of the mice mm. or the antennae with these yep. long streams, it's really hard to get a computer program to concentrate on those and still pay attention to the center. So this is something people are good at. And we built a fruit machine, which for those in the US, this is a slot machine. I didn't realize fruit machine didn't make any sense in America until I gave three or four of these talks. It didn't so. mean an awful lot to me when I came really? here either. I thought, fruit machine? That's great. Okay. A vending machine for fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that. It's not giving my money back. Yeah. <laughs> or any fruit. Or any fruit. Yeah. Well, this is like that except no fruit. No. So, so you log like. on to mergers.galaxyzoo.org and you get a little, you get your target in the center that we're trying to replicate. And then you press the button, you get eight simulations. And you can press the button and get another eight. And you can pick the ones that are close. And then we, you can even take control and, and fine tune a simulation. So you can, you can replicate what we're seeing on the computer. And the simulation will run on your computer. Hmm. Um, you, we're only worried about gravity. So it's fairly simple. And then we can take the average. I can explain the gravity comment later if you like. Um, no. Uh, sorry, there's a, there's a joke. Uh, we've got an audience. They laughed. They need to know why. They all right, all right, all right. Um, 
Yeah, so, so there's a joke that gravity is simple, right? Newton understood gravity. It's everything else in the universe that's complicated. So if you look, I, all my theorist colleagues think that the first three minutes to 300,000 years of the universe, that's straightforward because you've only got to worry about gravity. And then once you form stars, you've got to worry about chemistry and molecular physics and atomic physics. It's just messy. After inter- exactly. They, they, it's dismissively known as gastrophysics. Gastrophysics. Uh, yeah. So, so, so in this case, we can do well with just gravity and then put the gastrophysics in later. So if we get everyone to fine-tune their simulation, you don't need many people to um, show that this is... You don't need many people to produce the best understood galaxy merger in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a few hundred people could do that with a little time, and then we can take an average, and then we can map, and then we can run a high resolution simulation plus gastrophysics of that merger. And then for each of these three thousand mergers, we'll have a beautiful video showing what happened to begin with, what type of galaxies we started with, what happened to them as they interacted, and what's going to happen in the future. Um, and that's going to be stunning because then we can say what effect mergers have on the galaxy population. Something we've always wanted to know. Do you find that um, showing people a choice of eight possible mergers, is that enough to get a, a start? Well, you, you have eight, and if you don't like any of them, you click oh, the button. So you, the simulations run almost instantaneously. Hmm. So it's not that you hit it and go away for three three hours. On my laptop, all eight will run in two seconds. Oh, okay. And on a bad laptop, you know, Two seconds. Um, I need a new laptop. Um, but, yeah, so you get this... Um, you, you can run through hundreds very quickly, mm-hmm. and it gets kind of addictive, and, and people people get into it, particularly the unusual ones. We have a nice selection of ring galaxies uh, where there's we think there's been something like a head-on collision, and you formed a nice ring, right. but the details of that are, are difficult, and getting a ring galaxy is quite challenging. In fact, when we tested this, there was a whole load of data. that The data looked really good, and then there was a whole load that didn't make any sense. And so we went and looked at it, and there were a group of users on the forum who decided they didn't like our target galaxy and had challenged each other to make a ring galaxy instead. So <laughs> we've now provided a sandbox for people like that <laughs> so that they can play around. Go, go over there, the just there. Exactly. So, so mergers will go live on Tuesday, and, um, yeah, Jobcast people should come and, come and help us. Well, absolutely. Should we bring everyone else back in now? We should bring Ustream back. Okay, that's my confidential bit. So that was all. What, are they back? I think so. Hello, you street people. That was fantastic, wasn't it, Nick? Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Will you invite me to Sweden for the Nobel Prize award? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. That is, is fascinating stuff. And one thing I want to talk about now is, of course, your work embodies a, a, a common element, and that's people out there, the public. You've mentioned a couple of times before that you're getting people to do um, what computer scientists, computer programmers like myself find extremely hard to do, and that's to get a computer to do something which we as humans with a bit of gray matter between the ears find it easy. Pattern recognition, being able to look at something and go, yeah, it's the same, or it's got similar features. Getting a computer to do even the most basic uh, job like that is extraordinarily difficult. And that seems to be the common theme in getting your research done. You're getting other people to do it by using their CPU between their ears to go, yeah, those two things are roughly the same, or that's yeah, that's odd, that's different. Yeah, and this is what we evolved to do, right? Pattern mm. recognition and, and sorting stuff into categories. It, you don't notice yourself doing it, but if I showed you a photo of a cat and a picture of Tom from Tom and Jerry, all of us in the room know that that's in the same category of thing. You know, those are cats. 
But you try writing a computer program that you could feed a photo of an actual cat and a cartoon cat and get it to say cat out of everything else that it could have been presented with. That's the task that's really hard. Mm. You know, if the computer knew it was only going to get photos of cats and photos of Tom, it's easy to write a computer program. You can always write the specific instance. Mm. Right? You can do a really good job if you know what you're looking for and you can write something specific. Like, you know, character recognition for English works pretty well. But you can't take the same automated character recognition software and use it on Greek yeah. because it's been optimized for English. In fact, if you, want, if you don't know what language you're looking at, it's going to be much better to just show it to people. Have you ever tried using somebody else's voice recognition system on their computer, which they have trained to their voice? Precisely. You put someone like me on it, and it goes, mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I once tried to help Patrick Moore set up a voice recognition system, but it, it gave up in disgust. <laughs> <laughs> blue screen, blue screen of death. Ah. <laughs> well, it's fascinating stuff, and, and you, people wonder you know, what they can do. Uh, well, they, they, I'll put it another way. They look at what's... Um, professional astronomers do, and they go, wow, you guys must be really smart, and you, you know, some of us are, some of us aren't. It's <laughs> <laughs> a varying degrees. Um, what you do must be really, really hard, and you think, well, the hardest thing we do, we can't do. We need, you know... The and, and the word there that's important is need. So, you know, it, it's easy to come up with... I, I love, as hopefully as obvious, I love talking about astronomy, and it's really important to me to tell everybody in the world, whether they like it or not, what we're up to. Um, <laughs> partly because I'm like that. Partly because you, know, the, you in the audience, both virtual and real, pay our salary and fund Jodrell. And you know, we, we need to convince you that that's worth doing. But that's, that's one level of doing things. That's me telling you what I know. But it's much more exciting to sit down with two and a half, uh, well, a quarter of a million people and find out something together. There's something really amazing about that. And we've had, on this observing run with Stephen, we, Stephen's been blogging and tweeting and people have been making suggestions and, you know, it's this interaction. It's not really working with the public. We've just recruited another quarter of a million scientists and we really, really need more of that. Hmm. Luckily, we've got lots of plans. And one of those plans is your grand plan, basically, to go from uh, a group of people who may not be, you know, uh, uh, even amateur astronomers, but they learn through the process of doing these Exercises is a poor word, but doing these tasks for you through the Galaxy Zoo, Zoo 2, etc., uh, learning about what they're doing, and then finding that they're capable of making informed decisions as what to do next. And people do their own research, but where we're going with this is I have this nightmare vision of a monster that's terrorizing me, that keeps me up at night, and the monster is called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It's not as catchy as Godzilla, but it, you know, it, it haunts my brain in the same way. LSST, I've already seen its mirror. It's on the way. It's an 8.4-meter mirror. So it's as big as some of the biggest telescopes today, except that it's going to work in a radically different way. It's a survey instrument. So rather than you, as an astronomer, have half a, half a night on Keck this year, use it, take your data away, and analyze it, LSST will scan the sky continuously. It's going to cover the visible night sky from wherever it's put once every three nights. And that data will immediately hit the weather. Actually, whatever, you know, we're going to break the net, net if we do that. But will, will in some <laughs> way be distributed. Because the, the data stream we're talking about is 30 terabytes a night. So this does all sorts of things. One of the things it does is it means we're no longer talking about images necessarily. You can have a video of the night sky because it's going to revisit the same areas every three nights. 
And so if it does that, you're going to see, all right, asteroids sweeping across the solar system. It's going to map lots of the small stuff in the solar system. We're going to see variable stars moving. We're going to see supernovae going off. You're actually going to see the active nuclei in galaxies because of the light from the material around the black hole. The centers of some of the nearby galaxies will flicker because you'll actually get the change in, in brightness. Now, there are, we're still estimating what this will produce. But let's say we're going to be interested in a specific problem. Let's look at what we call transients, which are variable stars, things that change. How many different alerts are we going to get per night from the LSST? So not these days, if you have one of these survey telescopes, you get it, you get, have an observer sitting there, or you email the team if something happens. Depending on who you talk to, LSST will produce between ten and 100,000 such emails a night. So... Yes, you need computers to sort through the first set of that, but then you need to take what's left and give it to humans. And there aren't enough professional astronomers. So I think what we're going to need to do is, yes, a galaxy zoo type thing. So the first stage will be to put it through the zoo. The zoo will produce the most interesting things. But then we'll need volunteers, people like our audience here or, or the people listening at home, who will be capable, perhaps, of choosing from amongst those, longing onto a robotic telescope somewhere else in the world, taking a spectrum to classify it. Because I don't, by this stage, we're not going to care if it's a supernova. We only want to know if it's an interesting supernova. So mm. you have to have done follow-up. And we need to make that a democratic process, because otherwise we're going to get swamped. Mm. And otherwise LSST will rampage through astronomy. And this data will get lost. Yes. If we don't, and these things are fast, right? If you don't follow up a supernova within a few hours, you've missed the most interesting point. So you can't put it in the archive and come back and have some poor student trawl through the archive. We need to make this collaborative. And that's the real challenge, I think, for this kind of astronomy in the next five years. It's, a, it's the step away from just, if you like, being uh, as, a, as a member of the public, if you're, if you're looking at these images, classifying them, looking, at something, looking for something interesting, to taking a more active role and going, right, I've seen something interesting. It's curious. Um, I don't want to be yet another email to this poor stressed out um, project <laughs> investigator because it's one of 10,000 that he's going to receive. But what's this thing? I will log on and to this robotic telescope and ask, well, if it's going to be something interesting, then I expect a spectrum like this. But, yeah, but what we mean, but you can, what you do is you create a community that could do that. So some people will just be more comfortable or will want to spend their time or just classifying the images. Mm. And that's fine. We'll need lots of people to do that. Others amongst the community may be experienced amateur astronomers already, may have hung around, as has happened on Galaxy Zoo, have hung around on the site for a while and have learned a bit. Um, will be able to say, oh yes, that's a that's one of that's a P. We've seen hundreds of those. We've got a collection of them over here, so add it to the list. Um, you know, in that case, that's a category that didn't exist before the project started. Uh, and then some people will have the time or the energy to to follow up. I mean, this is going to generate school projects by the million. But it's this idea of the community with people. You know, I to be an astronomer to to see something that no one else had seen. I had to do A-levels, go to university, do a master's, do a PhD. Mm. And what we're talking about is somebody being able to get there from nothing, from turning up on a website classifying some galaxies, beginning to talk about them, reading a bit online. And this is career is what we call a citizen scientist, when you can develop your interest to the point where you're publishing papers. Mm. You know, and hopefully some of those people will come back and, and be professional astronomers. But if not, you know, I understand people sometimes want to to do other things with their life for some reason. Um, this would give them a chance to, to do some real astronomy as well. And that is an amazing, amazing thing. It's a very, uh, 
what's the word meritocratic way of doing things because as you say i mean if you if you are just happy about classifying it then that's all that you need to do but if you want to take it a step further you can do it and astronomy is one of those sciences where nobody's going to go like oh you haven't got a phd no go away well, well, and until you've got one and then you can and, talk to and me. we need these we need this to happen because we've got the data now amateurs have always contributed that's one of the attractions mm. to of astronomy so i'm not taking away from you know it sounds like i've just ignored 300 years of amateurs discovering stuff uh, and I'm in awe of people like Tom Bowles, who holds the the UK amateur who holds the uh, supernova record for the most supernovae discovered with his amazing setup. Or there's a group of Belgian amateurs who have discovered extrasolar planets. Mm-hmm. For goodness' sake, the idea that somebody with a small telescope in their back garden could discover a planet around another star blows me away. It? Mm-hmm. It, it's incredible. But each of those people are essentially they don't get paid, but they're professional astronomers. There's no way easy way into that. What you need there is 20 years of observing experience and actually um, a reasonable amount of money to invest in some quite decent kit. It might only be thousands, but it's still beyond the reach of the interested 12-year-old unless they got more po- get more pocket money than I ever did. Mm. Um, and so I think what we're talking about is something that anyone could do. Yeah. That, that's the point. Uh, you've, you've, uh, you've got around the requirement of investment in certain instances where you're, you're in charge of the, the information coming in from these big telescopes. Somebody else has paid for it, given you the data, and yep. you just said, here it is on a silver platter, if you like. You make a discovery. It's there you know, available for people to make a discovery. Go and do it. There's nothing stopping you. If you want to learn more about it, go ahead and do it. So yes. it's one of those projects which I think is going to be uh, absolutely fantastic. I can't wait. To- well, for now, galaxyzoo.org, and I will be checking. I don't know how we identify Jodcast listeners, but we'll find you somehow. Oh, the ones all night long going yeah. left, right. For starters, um. people here, Manchester was in the top 10 of cities, and it's dropped out. So those who live locally, I expect to see a resurgence in local classification. Stuart, I will beat you up if not. <laughs> I think we'll draw it to an end here. So thank you very much indeed, Chris Lintop, for giving us a talk about what you do. And it's absolutely fascinating. So everybody, please. And at the back there, of course, is uh, information about Galaxy Zoo. And, and for listeners at home, we'll have information on our website about where you can go to participate in what is quite possibly, well, for my money, the, the best public exercise in data analysis ever. It's almost as exciting as the Jogcast. Almost. Not quite. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Nick and Chris. And I'm wondering if IPs have already been patented by Apple. But um, that's, yeah, that's my rubbish joke. Um, yeah. So, um, someone who has already spent many years looking at galaxies and stars is Ian Morrison, and here he is to tell us what to see in the December night sky. Well, the night sky for December 2009. And of course, we have a long night at the present time, which is great. So... There are two parts of the sky, two of the very best bits, in fact, that one can see. Uh, Soon after sunset, over in the west, you can actually see Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and below them, Aquila the Eagle. It's a lovely region of the sky to look at. The swan is basically diving down into the sea, if you happen to look, looking over towards the Irish Sea, for example. And then further around to the south is the square of Pegasus. Up to the left of that is Andromeda. And within that, as we'll see later, the Andromeda Galaxy. Below that, a little circuit of Pisces. Below that again, the little planet Uranus is at the present time. 
Aquarius, in fact, also lies below Pegasus, but there are no very bright stars there to see. But higher up in the sky, you've got the W shape of Cassiopeia. And down to the left of that, Perseus. If you look with binoculars, between Cassiopeia and Perseus, you see a little fuzzy glow. It's the double cluster, a rather beautiful pairing of clusters in the Milky Way, which runs through that part of the sky. Well, as the night progresses, then over towards the south, east and east, we first of all have Taurus the Bull with that little group of stars, the Pleiades Cluster. Below that, the larger Hyades Cluster with the bright star Aldebaran apparently within it. And then again rising, perhaps about 10 o'clock at night, you've got the wonderful constellation of Orion the Hunter, the three stars of his belt, down to the left pointing towards the brightest star in the northern sky, Sirius. And below the central star of the belt, we have the so-called Sword of Orion. Again, binoculars will show a rather milky region in that sword, and that's M42, the great nebula in Orion, and that is a region where stars are forming. It's basically a stellar nursery. Up to the left of Orion, we have the constellation of Gemini. I'm going to come back to Gemini a little bit later on. Uh, binoculars will show um, a quite a nice cluster on the basically the foot of the uppermost of the two twins. And above them still is the constellation of Auriga, with the bright yellowish star Capella, highest in the sky. Um, that again is in the Milky Way, and with binoculars you may pick up a hint under dark skies of three very nice clusters. They're M36, M37 and M38. So it's a very rich region of the sky to look at, and very rewarding if you can get under nice, dark and transparent skies. OK, so what about the planets? Well, not a bad month for planets, actually. Uh, Jupiter is still visible in the southwest after sunset, uh, magnitude about minus 2.2, dropping slightly to minus 2.1. It's still 37 or so arc seconds across, so a small telescope will easily show you the equatorial bands and some of the detail on the surface. It's actually moving towards Neptune, and I'll mention Neptune a little bit later on. On the 21st, a waxing crescent moon will pass just three degrees above them both, as I'll show you in the highlights of the month. And again, a problem with observing Jupiter with a telescope when it's low in the sky is that the different colours refract as they come through the atmosphere. So you actually get sort of overlapping images in the different colours. A very good thing to do is to observe with a green filter. First of all, that limits the refractive effect somewhat, but also, in fact, a green filter brings out the equatorial bands. It makes them stand out more clearly, so well worth doing. You'll obviously see as well a number up to four of the Galilean moons. It's, it's very rare you wouldn't see any, but sometimes one or two will be either behind or in front of Jupiter as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn can now be seen in the pre-dawn sky. It actually rises at about 1.30 in the morning uh, at the 1st of December and about 11.30 at night um, at the end. So you can actually wait up and see it. Um, the angular size of the disk is about 18 arc seconds. So again, there's a little bit of faint detail you can see. It's not so obvious as the detail on Jupiter. Um, the rings are still very close to where John. In fact, they increase, the angle increases slightly from 4.3 to 4.9 degrees during December. So they're getting a little bit more open. Uh, and of course, this is one reason why Saturn is not as bright as it normally is. 
we're not getting much of a reflection from the rings. Um, a small telescope should easily show you Titan. That's at magnitude 8, 7.8 in fact. And uh, even binoculars might well pick it up. And a small telescope will, will spot it quite easily. What about Mercury? Well, that's been hiding uh, behind the sun, but it actually reappears in the evening sky in the latter part of December, and you can actually spot it low above a clear southwestern horizon. Um, it reaches what's called greatest elongation on December the 20th, and at magnitude minus 0.5, a telescope would show it having a gibbous phase, but the angular diameter is only 6.7 arc seconds, so you're not really going to see any detail. If you actually observe around the end of December, about the 20th, about get there perhaps to a good observing site with a low western horizon before the sun sets. Um, first of all, as the sun actually sets, if it's a very clear horizon, you might, might just see what's called the green flash, the final moment of disappearance. A little line on the horizon where the sun was becomes a vivid iridescent green. I've seen it twice. It's a lovely thing to spot often seen actually over the sea, but you can see it over land as I once did. If you get there in time, you'll know where the sun has set, so you'll know to look a little bit up to the left in order to spot Mercury a little while later. Binoculars will almost certainly help you. Well, Mars is becoming more prominent as it comes towards opposition, which is at the end of January. That's when we're closest to it. It's actually rising at about 8.30 at the beginning of the month and is well up in the southeast by midnight. And I looked at it the other night. You just see a little salmony pink sort of disc. It doesn't really look red. It's more of a salmon pink colour. It actually crosses from Cancer, where it is at the very beginning of the month, uh, into Leo on the 1st of December. So it, it moves into Leo. It continues um, eastwards in the sky until December the 20th, when it turns round and comes back towards Cancer, reaching Cancer again on January the 9th. That's the so-called retrograde motion, which so worried the ancient observers. Why did it appear to move backwards in the sky? Well, the answer is, of course, very simple. The Earth is sort of going round on the inside track, overtaking Mars on the inside. So relative to us, Mars appears to be going backwards in the sky. So that's going to be good and will be a highlight of next month's night sky, obviously. Sadly, in fact, this apparition of Mars isn't going to be one of the best ones because when we are at opposition, Mars is actually towards the outer part of its elliptical orbit. So the distance between the Earth and Mars is certainly a lot bigger than it often is and the maximum angular size is going to only be about 14 arc seconds, whereas a few years ago, at the closest approach for about 60,000 years, it was over 25 arc seconds. And that makes a big difference to what you can see. Well, finally, Venus. Well, really, this isn't a good month for Venus. It's basically going to be um, behind the sun. It gets to superior conjunction, which means it's behind the sun precisely, and that's on January the 11th. Uh, I did spot it low in the morning sky under a very clear sky, so there wasn't much glare from the sun just before sunrise a couple of days ago. I, I'm doing this on the last day of November. But I doubt whether one would be able to see it for more than a few days into December. We're going really to have to wait until February to have another look. So, there are the planets. What about some highlights of December? Well, the 14th and the days up to that is a great time to actually look out for the Geminid meteor shower, which is one of the best of the year. Now, last year, 
it wasn't very good because there was a full moon actually in Gemini, very close to the radiant. That's where the meteors are, appear to come from. But this year, it's only a couple of days before new moon. So the moon is not going to be a problem. And we have the really good chance, if you're willing to stay up around midnight, preferably a bit beyond, when Gemini is well up into the east, you should see maybe 60 or more meteors per hour. They come, in fact, from a comet, um, or an asteroid, rather, 3,200 Phaeton, it's called. And um, that's rather interesting, because most of the meteor showers actually come from comets. And the radiant, in fact, is very close to the bright star Castor. Castor and Pollux are the heavenly twins, the two brightest stars in the constellation of Gemini. And be warned, if it's cold, if, sorry, if it's clear, it will be cold. Uh, keep yourself warm. A woolly hat doesn't have help. Perhaps have a hot trick with you and go out to a nice dark site and just perhaps on a opened out deck chair, lie back and look upwards to the sky. And they can be a very lovely thing to look at. Well, that's on the 14th. Uh, at the very end of December, on the 31st, we just about have a partial eclipse of the moon. Uh, that is, a little bit of the moon will just go into the Earth's umbra and therefore go into complete shadow. So it's not really going to be that impressive. But in the evening, um, starting at about um, 17.17, so soon after dark, uh, the moon begins to enter what's called the penumbral shadow, and so its brightness will gradually drop. Finally, at 18.52, uh, a small part of the moon enters the umbral shadow, and it stays in for about an hour, and the mid-eclipse, as it's called, is at 7.52 p.m. You might just see the bottom right-hand corner of the moon going a slightly ruddy colour. Uh, incidentally, uh, that is the second moon, our full moon, of December, and it's therefore called a blue moon. Uh, the second moon, full moon in a month, is a blue moon, and that's sort of the phrase, you know, once in a blue moon. It doesn't happen very often. That's the current meaning, the second full moon in a calendar month. But in fact, there was a much more complicated ecclesiastical definition uh, some many years ago, but that seems to have changed. So the second full moon this month. Now, when the moon is new, the skies are darker, that's actually a good time to find the little planet Uranus, particularly with binoculars or maybe a small telescope. As I mentioned earlier, it's below the circlet of Pisces, which is itself below the square of Pegasus, and I put a chart showing you how to find it. It's actually five degrees below, and a little to the left, of the star Kappa Piscoris, which is the lower right-hand star of the, the head of Pisces. And um, you might just find it in, with your unaided eye, but binoculars will certainly help. So again, a little chart to find that on the night sky page. And for a couple of months, I've been telling you how to find the Andromeda Galaxy. You basically start at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus, arc around two bright stars, turn sharp right, one bright star, and then you come to it the same distance. Again, there's a chart showing you that. But I've added something this month, because under very dark skies, just a few days ago, I was able also to find M33, which is the face-on spiral galaxy in Triangulum. Essentially, you come back from Andromeda to the star where you turn sharp right, and you go the same distance again and a touch to the left. And if you do that under dark skies with binoculars, you might just see this rather little faint smudge of light, which is really all you see 
unless you have a really big telescope. But that's M33, the third largest galaxy in our local group of galaxies. M31, Andromeda is the largest, we reckon we're the second, M33 is the third. Finally, on December the 21st, you can see the crescent moon just three degrees up and to the right of Jupiter. Now, in fact, in between them, just 0.6 degrees above and to the right of Jupiter, is in fact the planet Neptune. But magnitude 8, with the light from the moon nearby, I'm not totally sure you'll pick it out with binoculars, but it might be worth a try. Neptune is beside a line of three stars, 42 Capricornus is one of them, that's at 5.1 magnitude, and there's 44 and 45 Capricornus, both of, of sixth magnitude, they make a nice little line, and Neptune makes a sort of a, tri a triangle with them. So that's a nice thing to find, not far from Jupiter, and um, have a look perhaps around the middle of the month when the moon is new. And if I haven't said it before, one thing you can easily do and should well do is to download the program called Stellarium. Just put Stellarium into Google. It's a free program. It's a lovely planetarium program to show you what is where in the sky. And that will help you find Neptune. So, quite a lot to see this month. I think the Geminids are the real highlight, so I hope we get a clear night that night. So happy viewing up to Christmas. So as usual, I'll finish with some words for those people who live in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I thought this month, I, I just mentioned a few of the stars you can see, some of the brightest stars. And the brightest star, of course, you can see in the sky, which is basically due east, about 30 degrees above the horizon, is Sirius in the, in the early evening. And that's at magnitude minus 1.46. And it's probably going to be twinkling. And because it's bright and low down, the atmosphere sometimes makes it look coloured. You get little flashes of greens and blues and reds. And sometimes people ring us up and say they've seen a UFO, but really it's actually Sirius. It's a Class A star. Now, the classes of stars, O, B, A, F, G. Now, the Sun is a Class G, so an A is on the hotter, brighter side. In fact, its temperature is about 9,500 Celsius, as opposed to our Sun, which is about 6,000. And it's actually 26 times more luminous. But uh, one reason why it appears so bright is that it's actually pretty close, only about 8.6 light years away. Now, the second brightest star in the sky, one that we cannot see from here, is Canopus. And that's actually about 15 degrees higher up and further around to the south. That's a fairly rare type of star. It's a class F, so O-B-A-F-G. So it's, it's not that much hotter than our own sun. It's a supergiant star. It's a star towards the end of its life, and there aren't very many of these. So that actually makes it very bright. It's about 13,000 times as bright as our sun. So that's one good reason why it appears pretty bright. In fact, it's actually quite a long way away. Um, in comparison, whereas Sirius was 8.6 light years, um, Canopus is actually 309 light years away. And that indicates it must be fundamentally pretty bright. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it so well. And then another bright star is Achenar. It's the brightest star of Eridanus. And that's just above the South Celestial Pole. It's the ninth brightest star in the sky, and it's a Class B dwarf, so OBA. So that's a pretty hot star. In fact, we're not quite sure what the temperature is. 
perhaps it's around 15,000 degrees Celsius. So getting on for three times uh, the temperature of our own sun. And that implies that the light from it is very, very blue. So just pick out those and think about them. Well, good hunting in the south as well. Thanks, Ian. So, uh, you know, you used to work with a live audience. There are people. So, as Ian mentioned, there, the Geminid meteor shower is happening this month. And Megan, you've got some news for us. Yes, um, there is going to be another Twitter meteor watch for the Geminid meteor shower. So there was one back for the Perseids in August, um, which was very, very popular on Twitter. And there is going to be another one um, in December. Uh, run again by Newbury Astronomical Society. They're going to run this one, according to their website, on December the 12th, which is actually two days before the predicted peak. Um, but I suspect it will run for a couple of days, as it did last time. The predicted peak for the Geminis this year is on December the 14th at 10 past 5 in the morning, um, GMT. And the predicted peak rate for the shower is 120, so it could be a very good shower to go out and have a look at um, at that time in the morning. It will be visible all night though, and for a few days either side of the 14th, and this year the moon is new on the 14th I think, or very close to, so it's actually going to be a really, really good night to go out and have a look, if it's clear. Megan, when you say about the peak, I mean the Leonids that was last week I think, there it was predicted that there would be a ridiculous number of meteors an hour, but well, actually yeah, actually it didn't seem to reach that, so how accurate are these predicted rates? Well, that peak was not particularly certain. The problem with predicting these things is that we don't actually know that where the streams are that cause these showers actually that accurately. So the predictions come from observations that people make. So the predictions are only as good as the data that we've got. The Leonids have been really good in previous years. There have been some really spectacular showers. They were hoping that this year would be good, but they were only tentative predictions. They were not certain by any means. Um, and sadly, yeah, we didn't get a fantastic show. Even the radio results weren't spectacular this year. The Geminids, however, is a much more reliable shower, and it does tend to produce quite a few brighter, larger, fireball-type meteors. So it is definitely worth going out and having a look for Geminids if you happen to have clear skies. So the peak will be on the 14th at about 5 o'clock in the morning, but where Gemini is in the sky, you should be able to see meteors all, pretty much all night. Thanks, Megan. And uh, Jen, you've got some news for us about where to go and have a look. For clear skies. Yeah, so in the middle of November, the Galloway Forest Park in Scotland was named as the first official dark sky park in the UK. And this is something that is done by the International Dark Sky Association. Depending on which reports you read, there are either already two or three dark sky parks in the States. No one quite, the International Dark Sky Association don't actually say on their website how many there are. And a park in Hungary was also made a dark sky park at the same time, so there's now two in Europe. And also there's this uh, website called um, needless.org.uk, need-less, which has a pretty cool simulator on it. It's only for the UK, but it shows you can click on where you are and it shows you what you should be able to see in the night sky. Which from Manchester isn't very much at all. Manchester, probably about five stars, maybe, if we're lucky. <laughs> and there's even a petition about light pollution going to the Welsh Assembly, and we'll have links to that in the show notes. Now, something I wanted to to bring up was ESA's Rosetta spacecraft, which has been travelling around the solar system on its merry way to 
This is why I can't pronounce this. Chewy gooey is, I believe, how we're going to refer to it, because no one can. <laughs> <laughs> but you're welcome to try. Okay, here's my attempt. It's heading to Comet 67P, Churi Yumov, Gerisomenko. Maybe. Now, it's not due to get there until 2014, um, but it was on its third and final flyby of the Earth on the 13th of November, which, as we record, this was just a week or so ago. And on its way by, it used its cameras to take some rather nice pictures, so the people in the audience here can see a crescent Earth. I think that's the South Pole at the bottom that you're able to see. And it also took some images of light pollution. This is the United States. You can probably recognize Florida there. So it just shows you really how well, how good the cameras are and also how much light pollution we generate as a species on the planet Earth. Do you know what it's actually meant to be doing out there with the comet? It's the first probe to land on a comet. So the main thing goes into orbit and then it's got a little lander that will touch down on the surface Will it do well. better than the Japanese one? That was on an asteroid. On an asteroid. Yeah, hopefully so. Rosetta's an amazing mission. It's a really big multi-instrument thing and the idea is to I think it's going to go into orbit around the comet while the comet's on its way into the inner solar system and then watch the changes as the comet comes in and gets heated up by the sun so yeah it's worth waiting for I think. Okay so as uh, some of you might have seen earlier on in this week on the uh, 16th of November um, there's a successful launch of the Atlantis space shuttle. This mission was uh, designated the code um, STS-129 it's essentially the 129th space shuttle mission so um, this mission comprised, or was basically dedicated, to building up uh, a star replacement parts on the uh, International Space Station, which is nearing completion phase. So these spare parts included about 15 tonnes of pump modules, gas tanks, momentum gyroscopes and components for the uh, space station's robotic arm. And they basically wanted to stock the space station with stuff that couldn't have to be carried by the other cargo ships, such as the European and uh, Russian modules as none of the other visiting spacecraft are actually large enough to actually take them up there. There are three planned spacewalks, uh, and these take part are to install antennae, replace an O2 tank on the US airlock, and uh, other various maintenance tasks. And this mission will actually last about 11 days in total. Along with this, they've taken up about, well, up to about a million worms. So thousands what, of these. Worms? Yeah, that's right, worms. worms. Actual worms <laughs> from the ground. C. elegans or nematode worms. So yeah, thousands of these are actually from the University of Nottingham here in the UK. And these worms are actually expected to suffer the same sort of uh, muscle loss as humans. And uh, this should be used to study the effect of zero gravity on humans' body muscle development and physiology. And I think they've also taken up some caterpillars to the International Space Station. Um, yeah, they just thought they'd have as many grubs up there as possible. <laughs> so are these caterpillars actually going to turn into butterflies? Yeah, so they've got um, a test group on Earth and they're going to see how the, uh, the caterpillars evolve into butterflies if there's any differences between the ones on the International Space Station and the ones on Earth. Mm. Are these butterflies going to get very confused in zero gravity? I hope so. It'll be quite funny watching them try to fly around up there. <laughs> is, is that me, me being a bit mean? I don't know. But I've, got, I've got a question. So worms in space... To, to find out about muscle uh, uh, loss, yeah. Don't we know enough about that already? I mean, we've been throwing people up there for ages. Confu I mean, there's a general question that seems that... Uh... Why is everyone looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I think well, the logic is that in general you study animals that are shorter-lived because things happen faster. So it's a higher percentage, I suspect, of the worm's lifetime. That would be my guess. Uh, but have, the you been, have you not been to the ISS all... for the Sky at Night yet? 
We ha- no, we tried, oh. but the insurance forms are a, a bit of a problem. <laughs> uh, I, I've also tried stowing away, but apparently the engines aren't a very good place. Um, no, the other thing about the worms is they all descended from uh, a group of worms that were dug out of a rubbish heap in Bristol. So this is the UK's contribution to the space <laughs> so this, program. This is our wormed space flight. That's right. The yep. nearest we've got so far. Yep. Brilliant. And talking of NASA, something we've covered a lot is the Spirit Rover on Mars, which is still stuck. I, keep, I say that every single time I think I start with it's still stuck. But I checked Universe Today website this morning, and apparently on the 19th of November, the I'm going to read this directly out, thank you Universe Today, the rover spun its wheels for the equivalent of 2.5 metres in the forward direction, and the centre of the rover moved approximately 12 millimetres forward. Seven millimetres to the left and four millimetres down. So, there we go. No, 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 you, you can't be depressed about that. It's, no, it's, it's good, it's good. No. They were really excited. But in fact, the rover stopped because it had gone further than they'd allowed it to. Their safety margin for that drive was one centimetre. Okay. Um, so that was the first attempt to extract it, and they, that was better than they expected. We should be celebrating. That's okay. the furthest spirit has moved since April. Um, it's an unbelievably successful thing that is the result of months of testing I want the audience to give spirit a round of applause let's have a round of applause (laughs) sorry I feel quite passionately about the rumours didn't notice (laughs) we should clarify that the picture in the background to us on the the audio people can't hear is not actually on Mars (laughs) that's the test spirit on the ground the people gave it away, really. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, also, uh, NASA has also created a website called Be a Martian. Um, the link should be in the show notes. So it's beamartian.jpl.nasa.gov. Basically, you act as a Martian citizen. You sign in, you log in, and then you can rove around the website and sift through the mass of pictures that um, all the actual spacecraft have collated over the years since 1960. And the actual archive itself is far too big for scientists to actually analyse themselves. So what they've done is a sort of similar thing as Pulse at Parks or Galaxy Zoo. So they've got the low-resolution images um, from the orbiters and stuff, and now what they want to do is from the landers and the high-resolution images is combine them together to get a, a proper sort of mosaic or montage um, to get a more complete map of the Martian surface, which um, should be very interesting in the coming years. And what happens if you find the remains of Bowie Base? <laughs> I, I spot you now. <laughs> I know you were watching. That's a Doctor Who reference to international audience listeners. I, ju- I should just add that it requires Microsoft Silverlight plugin to, to run all this. So yeah, it's it is quite temperamental. Nice as a, um, the Galaxy Zoo. For some reason, you have to like click about about two centimeters away from an actual button. It's it's completely bizarre the way they've actually designed it. Also in the news. In the last few days, we've had news about ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and they've just got the first fringes, which is a radio interferometry term, which basically means they've got two telescopes working together for the first time. So they're starting to do observations. I think the first two objects were the Orion Molecular Cloud and Quasar 3C84. So they've started doing science, and they will start adding the rest of their antenna. Two. Ah! <laughs> the, the, yes, it looks D- like there are just two portal Dave is pointing oh. out portal loose. Oh. Are they all oh, tarda- yeah, yeah. Or he thinks they're tardises. <laughs> I thought you were, yeah. I thought you were resorting to toilet. It's in the Christmas episode, don't tell anyone. <laughs> this is amazing. Sorry, I can't. I've been here. 
And <laughs> when I was there, there weren't any antennas. Show it off, aren't you? And it, it's just <laughs> hey, portable. I can't. No, there were no portables <laughs> as well. Uh, but this is eighteen thousand feet up in the Andes. It, it, it's so hostile this place that you could see that one of the antennae on the image has wheels, and you have to, rather than service these things up on the top, they built a transporter that will go up there, pick up these things, and they're 12 metres across the dish, and take it down to somewhere more sensible, where their astronomers can actually operate. Um, so to see ALMA being put together is, is stunning. Very, very cool. Sorry, apparently my role is to be randomly enthusiastic. <laughs> Wonderfully. You just wait till ask an astronomer, that's all down to you. <laughs> and uh, the final thing to mention is the restart of the Large Hadron Collider. And in fact, if we join uh, our feedback section with our odds and ends section, we've had a postcard from CERN, and the person that sent it is actually in the audience and has been the guard in the panto. <laughs> so, um... Could you please give us the latest news from the LHC? Okay, so some of you may have seen this in the news already, but uh, the LHC has been gradually restarting, and as of last night, we managed to circulate the beam, both beams, around the entire LHC ring. Um, I'm not sure how much people know actually know about the LHC, so I'll take a step back. So the LHC stands for the Large Hadron Collider. It's a large, a 26-kilometer circumference ring that's underneath parts of uh, Switzerland and France near Geneva. And what happens is, well, what will happen is that we accelerate protons in both directions around this 26-kilometer ring. And so four, four, four points around this ring, we collide these protons against each other. Um, I'm working on the ATLAS experiment, which is a detector built at one of these four points. And because of the way Atlas is situated, we don't get to see any of the beam until they've been circulated around the full ring. The other three experiments have already seen the um, beams because they're positioned so that they can see some of the beam. Uh, so last night was the first time Atlas has seen beams since last year. So what actually happened is there are some collimators to block off the beam. So first of all, they collided the beam into the collimators when they're fully closed, produce something called what we call splash events. Just literally, the protons hit the collimator and then produce all sorts of particles that then go into the Atlas detector. They've flashed up on the screen a picture of this. Uh, actually, th I think this is the LHC control room. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's the LHC control room because I don't recognize <laughs> people from Atlas. But that's to celebrate uh, the first beam circulating fully. So we got a few of those events in Atlas and then opened up the collimator to let the first beam circulate around the entire ring. Then after that, we turned off that beam, turned on the other beam, did the same exercise, splash it into the collimators just in front of Atlas to reduce the splash events inside Atlas. And so we've got a set of events and displays from that as well. And then passed the second beam around the entire way. Uh, if I understand correctly, that's the stage that we're at. And the next stages will be to have collisions, we hope, in seven to ten days' time of these two beams at the four interaction points. And then from there, we'll start ramping up the energy, because at the moment, we just keep the same energy as when we inject the protons into the ring. So next stage, ramp up the energy, and then go for higher energy collisions. 
and then see what we get out. Thank you very much. And the feedback that we got on our postcard is that uh, um, you'd love to come, but you'll be a little bit busy. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, moving on through our feedback. From Facebook, uh, Joanne Potter writes, Great interview at Parks in the November edition. Fascinating stuff. Were you involved in that? I was indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating stuff. Thank you to Joanne Potter for that. Uh, Who's got the forum? Well, on the forum and the website, we haven't really had much apart from excitement about Jogcast Live, so there's been nothing about November Extra because everyone was just so excited to be here. Oh, they're already here. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, unless anyone's got any comments they want to make now about it. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and over on Twitter, we're going to enter into a never-ending cycle with KS Astro, who says, I heart everyone from the Jogcast, especially Dave. Aww. And I wonder if I keep on providing feedback, I will keep on getting mentioned at the end. So yes, you will. Let's keep doing this every single time. And we've been neglecting iTunes over the past few months, mostly because their interface is so difficult to get through all the stores and read the reviews. But thanks to Kim Rowe, who listens with their entire family on the iTunes Canada store. Also thanks to Zafadi, I hope that I pronounced that correctly, Zafadi 3K on the US store. And our second review in the Swiss iTunes store from Jeff Slater. So thank you to all of them. And if you have iTunes, please review us if you haven't already. I just realised it's Zafod Y3K. Zafod Y3K, ah, of course. I don't just do Doctor Who gags. <laughs> so you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this edition of the Jodcast. Oh. <laughs> that just leads... That just leaves us to say a huge thank you to Chris Limtart for being interviewed and being generally enthusiastic. And thanks to Adam Averson of the Jodcast Radiophonic Workshop, Mark Plava for videoing us. Uh, Chris Tibbs for everything else and to Paul Miyagawa and Lisa Hartley for providing us voices in the pantomime now from everyone here That's it. Your three wishes granted. Wishes? Wishes? Give me that recorder. I'll wish for some data and a research grant and a new office and a new pen and some cake and an electric heater for the winter and... Thank you for using this genie. Three wishes have been used up and are not transferable. Please! These wishes are not transferable. Oh no, I'll never get to be department head. <laughs> Dr. Twanky, you'll never guess what I wished for. I got you all here and we did an astronomy podcast in front of a live studio audience. Oh, where's the professional respect in that? <laughs> Excuse me, I couldn't help overhearing, but you said you needed data? I have piles of it, more than I know what to do with. You can have it all. Do you hear that, Dr. Twanky? We've got all the astronomical data we could ever need. Hold on, Princess Parks? Princess? Oh, a princess. Daddy, it's my data and I'll do what I like with it. I blame the internet. Well, I, can't, I suppose I can't stand you way too long, can I? Now, Dr. Swanky, what's going on? Oh, your Imperial Mint. We don't know where our research budget is. Professor Arbanaza doesn't tell us anything. Very well. 
Seems I need to talk to this Professor Albanaza. God! My lord? Bring Professor Albanaza here. My lord. But we're locked in. There's no way out. My lord? Well, this is a problem. Oh, if only we had another wish. What else did you get? Look, sparkly shoes. Oh, you stupid, stupid, stupid... There are operating instructions for those, you know. Shut up, you! Click your heels together three times and say, There's no place like work. <laughs> what does it mean? It sounds like a dodgy film reference. I blame the internet. Do be quiet, dear. Shut up, Henry. Should we try it? Why not? Join hands, everyone. There's no place like work. There's no place like work. Back to my room. But what? Professor Abanaza? Janadin, um, what are you doing here? I could ask the same thing of you, Professor. Are you submitting expenses forms? So you do know where the research budget is. Dr. Twanky, this isn't how it seems. I can see exactly what's going on here. You, sir, are hereby to be replaced. What? And who are you? I'm the Emperor, and this is my daughter, Princess Parks. Ooh, a princess. Oh, does this mean I can have his office and cake allowance? Yes, Dr. Twanky. Guard! My lord? Take this card away and make him run Fourier transforms on apes all day. No! My lord. Oh, how wonderful! So everything's worked out just fine for everyone. I have my data, the princess has her news bulletin, Dr. Twanky's a new department head, and Professor Abanaza has been brought to justice. I would have got away with it as well if it hadn't been for those dratted shoes.